Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Wednesday night Bible study on the Newark United Pentecostal Church digital campus. My name is Stephen, and I, along with my co-host, he looks an awful lot like me, doesn't he? Anyway, my co-host, Vincent, we are excited to have you with us. If this is your first time, welcome, and you are in for a funny night. All right. So first of all, I'm going to say up front, please give us another chance. If this is your first broadcast with us, don't judge us on the basis of tonight alone, because tonight I have a feeling is going to be a lot of fun. So this week, our theme on our digital campus broadcast is the question, why? And there's various questions of why that we're answering. And so the team thought that it would be a lot of fun uh, somebody thought, I think it was the team, thought it would be a lot of fun to put me on the hot seat and open the entire Wednesday night Bible study to ask the pastor. Now, this is a throwback to something I used to do routinely and look forward to getting back to when we're back in our physical campus with our youth group. And I would come into the youth group and I'd have no planned lesson and I would simply open the floor and say, ask me anything you want to ask. And I mean, you could ask me anything you want to ask. And uh, so Vincent immediately remembers this from his younger days and said, I want to be a part of that broadcast. So Vincent, welcome to the broadcast. And I have been told that we may have a few um, guests popping in and out of the broadcast throughout the night. So um, as that happens, but folks, as this is unfolding, it is important that you post questions, questions you want answered. And uh, you'll help Vincent out a lot if you will preface those as opposed to your chitter chatter um, with the cap, all caps question. And that will make things more clear. All right, uh, Vincent, uh, do we have any questions coming in from from the broadcast? Uh, we do actually have one already. Sister Betty is on it. Uh, she asked, excluding family, name three people who greatly influenced your ministry. All right. So excluding family, which obviously then takes out my father. My father is probably uh, one of the, if not the most influential person in my ministry. Alongside of my dad would, in fact, be someone else by the name of Marvin Walker. In fact, I have said that James and Eleanor Beardsley, along with Marvin and Claudette Walker, these two couples, obviously James and Eleanor Beardsley being my father and mother, Marvin and Claudette Walker were heads of the Bible quiz ministry during my growing up years, 12 to 18. And uh, they provided a place for me that allowed a young man to find his identity, to flourish. Um, they acknowledged me in so many ways. So I would say that's one of the people, uh, both of them, both Marvin and Claudette. And they have, they have at key points within my life um, been there even more recently. Um, and so I very much appreciate them. So there's one or two, depending on how you want to count that. Um, probably two others that would be of interest to folks is I received my call to the ministry or I accepted my call to the ministry um, to do it God's way as opposed to my way. I received that call at a camp meeting when I was 16 years of age and two people were preaching that camp meeting. The night services were preached by Tom Fred Tenney of uh, Louisiana. Uh, God rest his soul. He is now in the hands of the creator and has passed on. And uh, I, in later years, came to know his wife, Thetis Tenney, and became very good friends with her and very much appreciate Sister Tenney. Um, but Tom Fred Tenney had a great influence across the years, but in particular that year. And then finally, Jack Cunningham. Uh, Jack Cunningham was the youth speaker at that time. He was the youth president. 
and he would come in and he would teach us one hour of the morning session and then he would preach to us. And I thought that man was going to bust that pulpit and give him a rickety old stand and he would beat that thing as he would preach at us. And it was after, in fact, I believe it was the last one. Uh, it was after he had preached. I don't remember what he preached, but I crawled into the back corner of Camp Saginaw's tabernacle and uh, me and God got it straight. And uh, I haven't turned back since. So I think that probably answers the question. Uh, before we go on, I, I see we got a couple of guests here. Um, let me let me see. Oh, my goodness. Look at that. There's another very influential person in my life. Uh, my other dad, as I like to say, uh, Brother Moss, you you are uh, you're getting you're getting techie up there, man. You're now you're on a live <laughs> broadcast. So so are you just on here to to, to uh, you know, kind of kind of uh, harass me or do you have a do you have a question that you want to ask? Well, I can ask a question that my wife uh, has talked about today in relation to the dove that's on our. Uh, yes. In fact, I can pop that up right there in the corner. So that dove, is that the dove you're talking about? Yes. And here, let me. And she was wondering yeah. about the history of that. How, how did it come to be? What does it symbolize? So on. All right, so the history of this dove is interesting. Um, it's probably going to go away when we rename the church. All right, so that's everybody cry tears. All right, but the dove goes back to really, and my dad really should be on this broadcast to give a fuller answer of this, but it used to have a banner and it had three words and faith, word, and I can't remember what the Spirit. third one was. Yeah, it might have been. And, but that's the key thing is that the dove is is has long stood as a, as a representation of the spirit, um, probably tying into the baptism uh, by John of Jesus and the dove ascending and, and alighting upon Jesus. And this is my beloved son. So that, that imagery was there. And so it really goes back. But this is actually a reworked version of a hand drawn one by one of the early, early folks that helped start the church, one of the original members. And uh, she kind of sketched it out, and we have since redone it. This version here that you're seeing on the screen there is actually uh, redone and redrawn uh, by Sister Kiara. And uh, okay. so we, we cleaned some things up and took the banner away. We felt the banner was kind of distracting. And so that's kind of the history of it. It really goes back. It's not as significant as some would think, but Dad was looking for a logo. When the church first started, the name was First United Pentecostal Church. What was crazy is, is there was another First United Pentecostal Church just across town. We had all kinds of mess ups with the banks and all that <laughs> other kind of stuff. And so when we redid the bylaws, we renamed it Newark United Pentecostal Church. And of course, the reason we're looking at renaming the church again, uh, again, another probably close to 20 years later, is simply because Newark United Pentecostal Church doesn't allow us to scale out. So we can't we can't have multiple campuses, et cetera, because it's tied to a location. Um, so we are a United Pentecostal Church. We have no shame about the fact that we're a United Pentecostal Church, but the name itself doesn't quite work now. And so that's where it comes from. But the dove itself was more happenstance, but it did come to be a symbol that we have used over the years as a part of our branding. And uh, has definitely been, here's a black uh, version of it as well. It gives you a little different view there with the gray background. In fact, 
I'm going to briefly take all of us off the broadcast and you can see another version of it in the background. The only way I can show it to you is if I pull this off. So I'll bring you back. All right, so you saw there that version as well. So we've played with this this imagery of the dove for a lot of years, a lot of years. All right. Um, any other questions, Dad, you got before we turn back to the audience? Not at the moment. I, I'll shoot up a flare if, uh, <clears throat> if I think of anything. All right, well, I'll remove you from the broadcast, but I'll see you in the background. And if you if you need me, wave at me and I'll bring you back on. Vincent, what else do we got? So the next one, Cassandra has launched into a delightful one. Are there aliens? Are there aliens? All right. So I'm assuming, Cassandra, that your question of aliens is related to life not on Earth. Because I'm going to assume time, it doesn't mean immigrants. Yes. Yeah, because the last time I checked, this Earth is full of such diversity that I, I mean, I think some of the members of my family are aliens if we're talking about just odd and different. But I think you're really talking about life not on Earth, other places. So the first answer is, is that we've been looking for it as humans. We really have. But to date, I don't know that we have found aliens. Um, now, there are conspiracy, conspiracy theorists that would argue that they have and they've got evidence and so forth. But honestly, I'm not compelled by it. Now, scripturally speaking, we do not have anything that tells us about anything except our story. Some people try to read that one passage where Jesus says, I have sheep that are not of this fold. And they try to read that as referring to other planets or other lives or other, other things like that. But I think you'd have to read into it. So biblically speaking, notice how I just went there, folks. You can ask me any question, but it'll be interesting how I answer it. It's probably going to be consistent with how we answer most questions around Newark. Namely, biblically speaking, we do not have any indication that I know of that points to the existence of other life, but that does not mean it doesn't exist because the Bible very clearly is interested in our story. In other words, it's the story of humans. And so it's really not talking to us about all of that. In fact, uh, a corollary to that or an, a related question could be, you know, what about the dinosaurs? And uh, Genesis chapter one talks about the fact that there was something that was in disorder. There was something that was in the watery mass when God began to speak things and put things into order. And so the idea that our story encompasses the entirety of the life of the earth might be a mistake as well, because the Bible does talk about at the beginning of our story in Genesis chapter one, that there was watery mess and that there was darkness and that there was disorder. And Genesis chapter one describes him putting that mess, that disorder and that darkness. He speaks light and he puts things into order. So did the dinosaurs exist before that? I don't know, it's possible. So the reality is, is the Bible is very focused and its focus is upon our story. It starts with the creation of the world in which we humans live and the creation of humanity. And then it ends with bringing us back to that perfect world. And, uh, and so that's really the bands of our, of our true knowledge, which is our story. All right. We have any other uh, questions, Vincent? 
Oh, we've got quite a few. So All that right. one also took care of the next one, which is actually from Desi of Did Anything Happen Before Genesis 1-1? You just covered that already. Was that so, Desi J or was that Desi Sr.? That was Desi Sr. Oh, uh, see, Desi, you got to come up with a better question than that. You knew I wasn't going to be stumped by that one. Look at that. I'm so good at questions. I answered it before you asked it. All right. Okay. What's next? So the next one is Sister Debbie asking for a friend. Where did Kane's wife come from? Oh, that's an awesome question. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right. So when I used to teach Bible studies, I had, I would tell folks that when it came time for questions, there were four possible responses to their questions. Number one, what I would is that I would answer it. And of course, I would promise to answer from the scriptures. I'm not going to answer from church tradition. I'm not going to answer. If I did answer something that was opinion based, I would I would very clearly preface it that it was my opinion. And that in a cup of coffee, you know, dollar fifty or maybe now it's five dollars for a latte, you know, can buy you a cup of coffee. It it's my opinion is my opinion. That's it. So I would either answer the question. Second is, is I would look at you and say, you know, I don't know the answer to that question, but I think I can research it and find out. Give me time. Third would be to say, you know what? I do know the answer to that, but it's not time to answer that. So please wait and I'll answer you at a later point. And then finally, I at times would look at him and say, I don't have a faulty idea. All right. I don't have the answer. So you ready? I'll answer two of two of the ways. First of all, I have a foggy idea. I don't know where she came from. Now, here's an opinion. All right. Or perhaps better than an opinion is an hypothesis. All right. So the first thing is, is to realize is that if you start with one man and one woman and all humanity comes from that one man and that one woman, then by definition, if the earth is to procreate, it means that you have brothers and sisters early on marrying. Now, if that wigs you out, please understand, part of the reason that we avoid that in these days is because of the reality of sin. It's the reality of the broken world in which we're existing and all of the permutations in our DNA and our, and our genetics. All right, none of that would have existed early on. So there is a possibility that in fact, we are only getting a piece of the story and we know that in the Bible, the Bible does not tell us everything. So we're only getting a piece of the story. And so, in fact, that there had been multiplication of humanity for a while. And it was from one of those other humans that Cain came from or that Cain's wife came from. The other possibility is, is that there were there were more humans. And I don't know where they came from. I would assume that God created them, but there were more humans. And they're simply not the focal point of the story. Now, before back to Genesis, folks, and the most close fundamentalist and conservative reading of the Bible goes through the roof and starts calling me a heretic. Please understand, I just told you these are hypotheses. I don't preach doctrine on this. I don't believe any of this. I just am looking at what does the Bible tell us? So if you like the answer and you want to stay more conservative, the answer is I have no foggy idea. Ask God when we get to heaven. If you want to play with a hypothesis, well, then there's a possibility of these other two options. Um, but neither one of them feel totally good or squishy or nice or they've got problems. And that's why I say to you, they're totally hypothesis. None of them uh, are fact for me. And so ultimately, we don't have a way biblically to answer. We just simply don't. The Bible's left some of that material out. And, and we do need to make peace with that, that the Bible gives us what we need 
but it does not always give us what we want. For example, I would love to know, it's not really important, but I would love to know, did Adam and Eve have a belly button? Now, that's a funny question, but honestly, they didn't have an umbilical cord because they were made straight from the dust of the earth. So did they have a belly button? And if you think about it, and they were naked, you'd look funny without a belly button. At least to us, we would. So that's one of those questions. There are questions we can ask that honestly, God's like, not important enough that I'm sticking it in the Bible. I was big enough. Have you mastered it all yet? I haven't. So I, I'm glad he didn't put more in because it, it's enough to master what we do have. Uh, I, I've noticed we got a couple. So, of hang guests. on, hang on. Yeah, before man. before we add in Desi, hang on a moment. So Desi has been submitting a ton of questions. It'll probably be simpler if we just pull him up. But before we get to him, there are two more that came in before his torrent of questions. So let me just knock out these two. And then well, we before you do that, hold on to those two because there's 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 this other mysterious guest. It, he doesn't seem to have his camera on. I'm wondering who he is. I, I bet he's going to bring some some interest. It says it's Arash. Arash, are you there? He's there, oh, but he's God, muted. I, I, there there we is. go. Now he is not muted. <laughs> hey, hey bro. Yeah. What's up? You're okay. You're okay. Oh, we're doing baby too. All right. We're not doing a rush. A rush gets you out of control. You're out of here for now. All right. What's the two questions? All right. So the first one is kind of an off the wall one. I'll just show it up here. So there we go. Uh, Samantha says her daughter Kayla has a question of what she should make for dinner tomorrow. <laughs> Spaghetti and meatballs. There we go. Yep. All right. So then the next one is also a Lugo question, but from a younger Lugo. Dinah wants to know when Jesus was born. All right. So I'm assuming Dinah wants to know the year that Jesus is born. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that's what she means by when. So this is an interesting question. Um, the problem is, is that our calendar has been revised multiple times through human history. And I don't remember all the details. In fact, Desi could probably answer this one better than me with regard to when each calendar is, is revised. In fact, I think he's a geek on that calendar stuff. Um, kind of thinks that's kind of cool. I don't. I just know it got revised several times. And one of those revisions occurred definitely after the time when Jesus was born. And the results are, is that our assumption that Jesus was born at zero, because we talk about before Christ or before the common era, is another way to talk about it. And then Jesus is born, and then everything in human history is after that. Well, the problem is you would ex expect that Jesus was born in zero. But when you take that revised calendar and you line it up with the Roman calendar, and you line it up with historical events, probably Jesus was born about four years before he was born. Not really. He was born about four before the common era. In other words, using this revised calendar, he was actually born four years before. Now, it might have been as early as seven before, but I generally tell my students when I'm teaching the Gospels and so forth that they should think about Jesus having died because he, he ministered for 33 and a half years, or he ministered for three and a half years. He started his ministry at 30. So they should generally assume that Jesus died somewhere around 29 or 30. Now, notice if you take that he was born four years before plus the 29 or 30, there you are. You're at that 33 and a half years. And so about 29 or 30. And by the way, we do have some archaeological evidence that bears this out, not just the calendar with regard to Herod the Great, but we have 
coinage and inscriptions that tie the time frame of Pontius Pilate, who very clearly the Gospels say Jesus was sentenced under the governorship of Pontius Pilate, there is inscriptions that tie very closely, right smack dab in the middle of that 29 to 30 that Pontius Pilate was in Jerusalem, excuse me, was in Judea, was governor, uh, procurator actually. And, uh, and so that matches. And so my guesstimate, Dinah, is that he was born about four before the common era and he died 29 or 30 of the common era. So he lived for about 33 and a half years. And uh, that's where I would that's where I would place him. But it's a good question, and I also think that we do not have a more definitive understanding of when Jesus was born, specifically because I do think prophetically he's coming back, and I think God is a planner, and I think if we knew when he was born, we might be able to figure out exactly when he's coming back. And Jesus did not want us to know when he was coming back; he wanted us to watch for him and to be ready. But we did not; we were not to know the day the time, the hour, but rather we were to be watchful. And so I think he kind of hid in history, not hard for God to do. He kind of hid the precision of when he was born. Um, but my best guess is about four. All right. So then all the next, the next like four or five questions are all just from Desi. So you said you had two questions though we needed to handle, didn't you say? That was two. That was the two. Oh, that was the two. It was about making dinner. That's right. Desi, welcome to the broadcast, my friend. How are you? I am well. I, I feel like I've been challenged because you said my questions, I I could do better or something you could. like that. You wanted, you, you could. Well, you could, my friend. Come because on. Because you didn't, you didn't see the whole string of questions that I submitted. They're being <laughs> spoon-fed to you one at a time. Oh, so I have to take them as the a torrent. barrage, huh? I type them as a barrage, <laughs> but let's swing back around. If you if you know what happened, you know before Genesis one one. So my next question is, who's the us in Genesis one twenty six? Ah, now that's a softball. Come is on, it? Okay. it is. You can we'll answer you, it quickly. You kick me a softball. All right. So the reason it says us, there's a couple of. Theories. I could spend the rest of the night asking you questions in Genesis that I'm pretty sure most of your answers are going to be I don't know, but we'll start here. No, this one, this one, I have a pretty strong opinion that's based in the scriptures. It is opinion. Okay. Some would say that God is speaking there to the angels. All right. But there's a little Which problem. Which comes from Hebrew tradition. That's so correct. But that's there's not a problem with that. Out of nowhere. That's right. And But there's a problem with that because the same verse, verse 26 that you reference, is talking about let us make this new creation, this humanity, in our image. And the psalmist tells us that we were created a little lower than the angels. And so there seems to be some kind of a difference between us and the angels. Angels seem to be spirit beings. They can take on physical form, but their primary uh, being is as a spirit being. Our primary being is not as a spirit being. It is as a physical being. Yeah. So that one, while I understand the tradition of it, and I'm not bothered by that, it taps into uh, the royal throne room language. Uh, it, it can even talk Which about... we see in Isaiah and Ezekiel exactly. and other places. That's correct. So, and it might be that God is even using the royal we, but I am not convinced by that. I believe that this is, a, is, this is much more interesting. So here's the interesting part of it. Basically, there really isn't an us there. The reason there's oh. an us... The reason there's an us there is because... 
the Hebrew word being used there is a word that in the Semitic languages goes back to the Canaanite gods and refers to gods, plural. All right. So grammatically, if you're going to be grammatically correct, then you have to, since that word being used for God there is plural, you need a pronoun that matches it. You, you need, need a plural pronoun to You need a plural pronoun. Plural. Exactly. But remember, the Hebrews have had a revelation to them, first of Abraham and then down through the years, that this God... It's, it's monotheistic. Yes, it's God is only one. There's only one. Well, they still have the, they only have their common language. They don't have new words yet. And so they use this word. It's plural in its grammatical form, but it has come to mean singular. So if you were to translate this verse according to its meaning, it would be God saying, let me. And what's interesting is I think it's the next verse or the next or two verses down. I can't remember. It even says, the commentator tells us this. So God made humans in his, his image. image. It's the next so one down. Immediately, we see the commentator, the, the, the narrator, if you will, the author of the text, telling us how he understands it. So, so who's the author? Now that. Come on, you just walked that, into that one. That we do not know. He wants me, folks, to say it's Moses. Maybe he doesn't. I don't know. There's Actually, I don't, I don't need it to be Moses. But I, Arash needs me to have it Moses because he loves the idea that Moses wrote in his own book that Moses in was Deuteronomy. humble. Yes, that Moses was humble. But that's I don't know who wrote it. I think there may have been multiple authors. Authorship in the ancient world was much more complex than any of us like or are comfortable with. Arash has and, an opinion about that. Yeah. And yes. so that he did write that. He wrote that about himself. He said, I'm the most humble man there is. Yeah. Why, see, what is he, wrong about that? I didn't say, Arash, that, that, that there was, I didn't say there was anything wrong with it. I just am not big on the author game. And you all know this from having had classes with me. I could care less with the action, with regard to who the actual author is. That game is not, I'm not worried about it. Because as soon as we believe that scripture is inspired by God and that he's using humans, we want to acknowledge the human input into scriptures. In fact, I'm big on that. I'm much more big than even my peers are on that. That We don't just say this got downloaded from heaven. But the particular author, unless they explicitly identify themselves, which, by the way, Paul does a lot. Unless they explicitly identify themselves, I am not as big, I'm not as big into that. And where that authorship comes from is about authority. People are concerned because what it, they do is it, they... It ties to canonicity arguments absolutely Both and if you tie canonicity to authority then you have to answer who the author is that's correct that's exactly right and so that's why it's not as big a game for me but the bottom line desi is that question of us i think we have to either just as the hebrews used the plural but understood it as singular we either have to do that we have to take the overarching message of the scripture which is heroes are the lord your god is one and understand right. it's one, or translate it in light of that understanding. And then I would do like the next verse or the next two verses does, where it says, so God made humans, made man in his image. His, after his image, life. His singular. singular. Because they actually changed the word there. They actually changed the word that they're using for God, and therefore you've got a shift in the what they're allowed grammatically to do. So it depends on how woodenly you're translating that verse versus 
whether you're translating for meaning as opposed to literal or as literal yeah. as translation can be. All right. So what's what's another one of uh, what? Let, let's let's give Desi a break for a minute. Rosh, what was your uh, big question? My, my question was, if you read in Mark chapter 14, there's this young man who's running. Naked. <laughs> and I think we all want to know is who is this young man? You mean the guy who lost naked? his clothes and now is naked? Yes, it's, it seems to be a big part of the Easter play. Obviously, I've never seen this in the Easter play when I, most churches I've gone to, <laughs> um, which I feel is a, a disjustice to the scriptures. But um, I kind of want to pick your well, brain on what do you think that is? They, they want the Easter play to be non-pornographic, uh, Arash, so we kind of got to avoid having naked young men come running through. So this is this passage. If you don't know what Arash is referring to, go and read in Mark chapter 14. Jesus is in the garden. He's being... He's being arrested, and we have this weird, weird story of this young man that comes through, and he gets accosted, and he loses his robe, and when he loses his robe, he's, he's like naked, and now he's running, he runs away, and who is this, or what is going on? And, it, and Well, and part of the problem is you call it a story, it's two verses. Exactly. <laughs> well, it's in the midst of a larger story. And so the answer, Arash, is, is that we know what theories have been made. Theories are that it's the author of the Gospel of Mark, and now we get into authorship. And so is it John Mark? And he was a young man. He was kind of lurking around, and he'd run out of the house, and, you know, it was at night, and so he didn't have all his clothes on, and, you know, he's, he's just kind of trying to figure out what's going on. But notice it's all a bunch of theory and hypothesis. The bottom line, Arash, this one, I have no idea. And I don't think anybody has any idea. And this one, I don't even have, I don't even have an opinion about it. It's so wow. brief. It's so small. Now I know why you think it's so cool because you want to go all kinds of places with this crazy, you know, this crazy story. It appeals to your. I don't know what it appeals to, but I get it that that you're interested in it. But <laughs> I, I could care less. I don't know. It's one of those blips in scripture that probably the original readers knew backstory to. So I will take opportunity to say many times when you read the scriptures and there's some little reference that you're like, what are they talking about? Usually the original reader has more story. And the best way to exemplify this is if I said to all of you, all of this audience, I said to you, folks, this is a 9-11 moment. If I said that to you, not a one of you thinks this is September 11th. Not a one of you thinks this is the numbers 9 and 1-1. One, one. You all think this is a terrorist moment. You all think that this is a moment of great death. You think that this is a moment of great political significance. You could fill in a lot because 9-11 for us evokes an entire story, a massive story. Well... We wait long enough. Somebody's going to get to the place where maybe history has receded. We're all just lines in a textbook. And 9-11, you'd have to be an expert to know what 9-11 was referring to from our context. So it's shorthand. And we see other examples of this. The Nephilim or the giants or the sons of God who come down and from which the daughters of men and the giants uh, are born from the daughters of men. Uh, that's one of Desi's questions. Yeah, that would be another example. Yeah, I'm looking for a battery because my phone's about to die. And so <laughs> I was like, come on, get to the fun stuff. Give me some First Enoch. I, I plugged come mine on, in, Stephen, Desi. First Enoch. Who are the Nephilim? You got to answer this. So the Nephilim, uh, you could read about this in Genesis chapter, help me guys, is five or six. 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 So 
in Genesis chapter 6, it talks about the sons of God descend and they basically have sexual intercourse with the daughters of men. And the product of this Say, is, what? is these giants. All right. So, so, so people, who are the sons of God? These Nephilim, if we're going to use the Hebrew word. And, and Mr. Bible scholar, you got to pull in first Enoch. And first Enoch is acceptable because Jude quoted from first Enoch, right? So it, it's totally. <laughs> this is so true. Hey, hey, Rich, we're going to have to go back off of this pastoral team questions and get back to some normal people questions. Oh, because oh, they said my questions weren't complex enough. Oh, they're, 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 a normal person. He's just like everybody else. <laughs> Don't I have a right to have my burning biblical? He's as average as a well. nice guy. Not, not when you're being a goofball. All right, so here's the deal. What Desi's referring to, let's go backwards. We do have materials that are not in the Bible. They're historical documents. They represent the periods in which they are being written. And they are very much uh, in the mind and, and of the biblical authors. They're aware of these documents. And so one, we call most of these apocryphal material. Pseudepigraphal yeah. material is another way to speak of them. And so we have a specific example in which one of the New Testament authors. So are you gonna are you gonna delineate between the pseudepigrapha and the apocrypha? Because those are two different things. Do I need to delineate between them? You probably don't. But I'm still incensed. I am I, insulted I, because my questions weren't complex enough. So you want to keep digging? Uh, you see, folks, I told you it was going to be fun tonight. Desi's mm -hmm. trying to show off now. All right. So actually, he is showing off. He's not even trying to show off. He's just showing off. No, I'm not going to bore us with this. I'm not, not going to bore us with the difference between apocryphal and pseudepigraphal. It's basically non-authoritative materials. It's good enough for that. So Jude references one of them. And there's a whole body of material. And it's weird as all get out. It's fascinating. It's interesting. But it's weird as all get out. And I'm talking about multiple books written over hundreds of years. not Jewish fables. And it's called the Enochic material. And so Desi's referencing one of them, first Enoch, but that's not the only material. There's multiple. There's first, second, third, fourth. There might even be fifth, sixth. Okay, there's a crazy amount of material. And then there's also the Book of Watchers. There are all kinds of crazy stuff, okay, that's a part of this Enochic material. It comes from the Jewish people over time trying to explain and understand this guy that's referenced in the Old Testament as the man Enoch who walked with God and then he was not because God took him. And this captured. And what does that even mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it captured the fascination of the Jewish people. Who was this guy and what's going on? And so over time, the Enochic material built trying to explain this and rolled into that is a much more detailed understanding of what is called the watchers or the sons of God. And so. Enoch gives us information. It starts sounding like a comic book. Absolutely. It's it's like the Marvel Universe. I mean, just mm -hmm. flat out. Okay. And so they give us explanation about who these sons of God are. Now, the reason Desi brings up Jude, brother of the Lord, is because Jude and Peter seems to follow suit in his passage also. Uh, in fact, Pastor Jeremy Cornette called me about this from first, it's either second Peter or first Peter. Which one is it, Desi? You probably know off the top of your head. Uh, chapter two. I think it's... I think it's first Peter chapter two, but anyway, he, where he talks about God's judgment being delayed, actually it's chapter one of either the first or the second epistle of Peter, where God's judgment is delayed, but it wasn't delayed when he cast the demons, uh, mm. the fallen ones into chains, et cetera, et cetera. Peter's probably following 
a lot of the material that Jude references. So what are what are Peter and Jude doing? They're using material that their audience would know, just like I was talking about the Nephilim. They know this material just the way that I, in a sermon, I'm not preaching that 9-11 is biblical or that 9-11 is authoritative, but I might, in a sermon, use 9-11 to illustrate an illustration. a great wickedness or a great tragedy or a great death. And I don't have to tell the whole story. I just have to refer to 9-11. So when we talk about the Nephilim in Genesis chapter 6, the sons of God who come down, they have intercourse with the daughters of men and giants are born from them. We don't have to know the whole story to know why this story is being used. Because if you read the passage, the point is not to know the whole story. The point is, is that the original audience would have known the whole story and the whole story together was used as an example of how wicked the world had become and thus the need for God, the choice of God to destroy the earth. To do something, to intervene. Exactly, to do something. So while we don't know the specifics of the Nephilim and while I'll just tell you, preachers who don't have enough to do like to spin webs about their theories about this. You're missing the main point. Anytime you hit a passage of scripture where we're missing some of the pieces, if you'll back up one step, you'll know why it's being cited because the context will tell you why it's being cited. And that's the important point. So the Nephilim, the sons of God coming down and, and mating with the daughters of men and producing giants are examples of wickedness. We don't know why it's wicked. We're missing that part of it. But it's, it is the prime example for the author of Genesis of why it's so wicked that God says, I can't take this anymore. I'm going to destroy the earth. So bottom line, Desi, is I don't know the answer. All right, Vincent, let's and get... I really just wanted to hear you say, I don't know, multiple times yeah. in this broadcast. Oh, well, that, I'll say that lots of times, folks, because there's right. a lot that we don't know. So, Vince, Desi can stay on for a, a minute here. I'll, uh, I'll go ahead and drop. You can go yeah. answer other... All right. So, so what else do we got, Vince? All right, so we have another one from Grandma. This one is, why did Jesus curse the fig tree in Mark 11 when it wasn't time for fruit to be on the tree? I have a foggy idea. <laughs> here's, here's what the general passage is trying to address. It's talking about faith. And so when I look at this, I'm like, how does this have to do with faith? Because if my memory serves me correctly, this is also that same general passage is where we get descriptions about if you have enough faith, you can move a mountain. Is Jesus literally telling us if we have enough faith, we can pick up a mountain? Or is he saying that which is impossible can happen? Um, some have said that Jesus was just ticked off that fig tree didn't have figs for him. That seems rather capricious to me. That seems kind of petulant on the part of Jesus. But maybe Jesus was having a bad day. I don't know. How far does this being tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin? Am I sinning when I'm tired and grumpy? Uh, my family would probably say so because they don't like me when I'm tired and grumpy. But am I sinning or am I human? So there's some theories, there's some ideas about what's going on there, but I have never that passage to date. And maybe I'll crack it some point in the future. But mom, I do not, and I have looked at it several times. Uh, I've never been able to find what specifically was going on there. Um, I do know that he was demonstrating his power. 
because by cursing the fig tree, of course, by the time they came back, it was wilted. It had died. And last time I checked, I I wish I could do that because there's some trees I'd like to get rid of. Uh, there were flowers that I wanted to get rid of at the church that I used to have to weed as a kid. I would have loved to just curse them and had them all die instead of using the lawnmower to kill them slowly while my dad wasn't looking. But that's a whole other story for another time. Jesus was demonstrating power without question. But how that relates to the main thrust of that passage, that one's a little bit less clear to me. And let me take this as an opportunity to, to explain something to you. There are passages in the Bible that I think there's no answer to, and it's fruitless to spend any more time. For instance, that's why Desi brought up the Nephilim, because he knows that that is a fruitless, fruitless pursuit. And the idea of getting anything out of that, it is so shrouded in the past. We just are missing too much of the story. Again, we know that it's a sign of the wickedness, but to actually understand it fully, we don't have enough data. We don't have enough of the information. On the other hand, there are times that there are passages that I don't know the answer to. You might not know the answer to, but as you continue to study and you continue to read, there is a point where it can come clear and you don't know whether and how it's going to happen. And this is one of, this is this is what I would consider the one with the fig tree. I don't know that we can't know the meaning of it, but it seems to me like it's a little shrouded. It's a little hidden. It feels like Jesus when he talks about the parables and says I'm, I'm kind of hiding it from you all. I'm putting it in such a cryptic manner that you're going to have to spend some time really seeking it out. And uh, this is one of them and I haven't figured this one out yet. All right, Vincent, let's move along. Yeah, so I, we have way more than we're going to get to. So I'm just well. Let's just to... let's just keep going, keep rolling, yep. and we'll see how quick we can go. It looks right. like our audience is enjoying it. We got 50 folks watching, so uh, we'll just keep rolling with it and see how we do. Yep. All right. So let's see. Scrolling down here. Um, another one is Cassandra. Um, is God lonely? Oh, is God lonely? <laughs> All right. So this question is one that I, I should have seen coming. She asked it of me another day or two ago. Um, I don't know if God is lonely, but here's what I can answer you. I know that God desires to be in communion or community with us humans. That's what I do know. Uh, we do know that God has always been. We do know that angels were created. So if they're created, there's a point where they didn't exist. There's never a point where God did not exist. So there had to have been at least for some period of time, a period where God himself was alone. God itself was alone. Was God lonely? I don't know. But I can tell you that he seems to be in the creative urges. He wants creatures that are in relationship with him. I don't fully understand the relationship of angels with God, but they seem to have a relationship that can be broken, but also be meaningful and positive. And then he created us. And the reason I know he desired us for community is because we're just, it's described that he would come in the cool of the evening and walk. And, 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 okay, how does a spirit walk? Well, we're using anthropomorphic language, language that lets us understand a non-physical being in physical terms. All right. Um, but he was in communion. And the important point is, is that when separation occurred because of sin, immediately the scripture shows us that God begins a program of drawing people back to him. Uh, he builds individual relationships with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He creates the tabernacle 
very carefully structured way to live among his people. Separated from them, yes, but still in the midst of them. And then the temple, and then ultimately coming to be one of us. And now he lives in us. We believe in the infilling of the Holy Spirit, God living inside of us. So I don't know if he is lonely, but I can certainly say that he desires to be in community and in relationship with his creation. And so there's a good chance that God could be lonely. Yep. All right. So just a moment. Let me pull that one down. All right. So the next question up is, of all the different locations you've preached in the world, what was your most memorable experience? All right. So first of all, let's be honest. I haven't preached that many places in the world. I have traveled. And I've been honored to travel, and I look forward to traveling even more. Um, but I have traveled to some wild and crazy places. Um, I, I, and probably the most memorable experience was not Sister Becky where I preached, but rather it was uh, my time with Vincent and and Regina when we were in Cuba. And um, and I've had great experiences in Ghana, great experiences in Nigeria. And I could tell you story after story of Nigeria. Nigeria is a wild and wacky place. And I love it. I love going there. Um, but probably the most memorable was in Cuba. And and we were meeting some of the apostolic leadership um, of the Cuban church there. We had through a missionary gotten in contact with them. And at least from their perspective, now we were tourists, so we had no idea, but from it felt pretty free in Cuba. We felt pretty safe, all those kinds of things. Well, they were much more cagey. And so we were to meet them outside of a, I don't think it was, a, I think it was a hotel. And then we were going to go and eat um, at a restaurant together. And then the place where we were staying was actually a, a, an apartment. And uh, so we went back and we met there. We spent some time there alone and there they were able to talk more freely. But probably the most memorable was, was walking up and through Vincent and Vincent here, help me in answering this because your memory might be better than me asking them, uh, were they looking for somebody or were they, were, were they, we were trying to identify, were they the ones that we saw there were three, we'd never seen them before. We'd never seen their faces before. Um, and, their answer back to us was, it depends if you have the right name. <laughs> Something along those lines, yeah. Yeah, and and on the one level... It was, my, it, my, Sp my Spanish was a little weak, so I might have interpreted it slightly off. But yeah, it was something slightly Riddle-esque like that. Right, exactly. It was a little cryptic. On the one level, it was like, well, if you have the right name of the people we're expecting to meet. But on the other hand, very quickly I realized... Nice. They were referring to the name of Jesus. Now, they weren't going to name it. You, if you didn't have the name of Jesus, if you didn't know who they were, if you were not an apostolic Pentecostal, you would just think they were talking about your surname. And that was probably the most memorable experience for me, realizing in a very even limited fashion what it was like to live in a persecuted country a country where your life was on the line just for who you were. And it's never left me. And I, and, and I, I enjoyed my time there speaking through Vincent and us conversing, them trying to speak in English a little bit, but not much. Uh, and, and Vincent practicing his Spanish and all of those kinds of things. But that was, that was my most, probably my most memorable experience. Yeah. 
All right, so just a moment. Um, so the next one is from Mariana. Does God have a specific gender? All right, so Mariana, God, who is a spirit, in whose image male and female are created? What do you think the answer to the question is? The answer is no. Male and female flow from God. In order to understand God in who God is in his native form, in, and the, here I'm going to use this, its native form, in God's native form, that is a spirit, there's no gender tied because the two genders flow out of God. So if you want to understand God, you've got to understand male and female. This is why the injustices of male and female relations is a product of sin. Brothers and sisters, hear me very, very clearly. The way that we treat one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, the way that men treat women and women treat men, and the absolute horrible things that are done to one another, out of ignorance and out of knowledge, these are all a product of sin because God is male and female. Now, if you had asked the question, does Jesus have a gender? The answer is yes. Jesus is presented as being a male. And the answer that you may not have, <clears throat> excuse me, the answer you may not have asked, or the question you may not have asked, is why would God come as a male as opposed to a female? And I think the answer there is not that males are more important than females. Sorry, guys. That's a broken view of the world. That's not understanding Paul's instructions towards mutual submission. It's not understanding that humans were created in God's image, male and female, he created them. <clears throat> but rather, because of the brokenness of the world, and because humans have to be either male or female. So God had to pick one or the other if he was going to take on human form. I believe it's contextual. In other words, the time and the place, what God needed to do, he was able to do as a male. Now, the challenging thing to understand about this is, though, is that God's physical expression now is male. And so there's a piece of that that this is why it's very important for us to recognize that some of the hard lines that we think exist about what is a man and what is a woman, God doesn't see it quite that way. Like the idea that men are only providers and women are the only nurturers. Men are the ones who fight and women are the ones with emotions. These are cultural constructs. We all have them. We all live with them. But I think that our understanding of maleness and femaleness needs to be informed by scripture <coughs> and not by culture. And that means there's a lot to be stripped away because, well, I'll put it to you this way. My sister Janet was in talking about these general trends, if you will, between characteristics of men and women. She was giving these different descriptions. <clears throat> and I turned around and I looked at my wife in the middle of this and I said, am I a man? Because Regina and I had actually flipped a number of these characteristics. She had a lot more of what you would call the male and I had a lot more of the female. Now, my wife was very quick to smile and whisper back to me, yes, dear, I can affirm that you are a man. The point is, is some of our gender stereotypes are culturally generated. They're not necessarily coming from God. And so this is why as Bible-believing Bible Christians, we need to be very careful that we do not add our opinions and our culture to the scriptures, but rather give liberty. That which God defines, 
as male, that it should be male. That which God defines as female, it should be female. And that which he allows to be shared in common, fluidly between, like all males have emotion and all females have emotion, but it expresses itself uniquely. Or all of these different kinds of things, then we need to be careful about how quickly we think we know what's going on with regard to God. And that, I think, forgive me, Mariana, I'm a male answering this question. I think that lightens the load of saying, well, I don't really know how to relate to Jesus because he's a man. Maybe if the bifurcation between men and women was not heightened because of sin and we were more help meets according to the opposite of one another, that which matched one another in a mutually submitted manner, maybe then it would be less of a problem. And of course, that's our goal, is that we, the whole entire body of Christ, would be in mutual submission one to another, esteeming one another more important than ourselves. So God as a spirit does not have a gender. It's another being. It's a spirit being. Gender is not, re is not uh, relevant in spirit. Gender is relevant in a physical existence. All right. So the next one is from Sister Erica. When you and mom went to Africa, what was a different kind of food you ate that you would eat again? Oh, jollof rice. It burned my mouth like crazy because it was really, really hot, but I loved it. That along with the Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> and yes, Kentucky Fried Chicken is there. Um, probably the food that I would not eat again. Uh, it was It was in Ghana that I had it. And I'm thinking, oh, Regina, help me here. I think it's fufu. I think it's called fufu. It's basically this root, and it, oh, it's heavy and just dense, and it's just filler. Folks, I, I hate to say it, and, and Africans love it, so I'm respectful of that, but it's filler, and it's done inside of this sauce. You eat it with your hands, and uh, I did not like that. I mean, I ate some. I was respectful of that, but I did not like it at all. Um but jollof rice, I really liked it. Um, Nigeria, unfortunately, is a very modern country in, in some senses. So a lot of times what we ate there was not as exotic as you might think. Um, I do want to, and I haven't been able to do so, I want to eat a maggot. They have them. They are fried. They sell them on the side of the road. They're big. They're like this big. Um, they're kind of crunchy on the outside and gooey on the inside. So you kind of bite down and... <laughs> slurp it out. It's like eating crawdads. Um, I want to eat one, but I haven't gotten the Phelps, my friends there in Africa to get me some yet. So hopefully in a future trip, I can eat, eat a maggot. Now I may only eat one and never eat another one again, but I really want to try a maggot. Regina is absolutely uninterested in trying a maggot. She does not want to try it at all. <laughs> all right. So got one that I think should be pretty quick and then a bit of a longer one. So will all the future campuses you mentioned were expanding, will all the future campuses be in Delaware, or do you plan to expand further than that? That's a great question. So first of all, as all of you know, and if you're new with us, you may not know, but let me remind you, our, our heart is to grow uh, in being able to have soul-saving stations, places that are bearing witness to the gospel, and ultimately be able to plant multiple churches based out of Newcastle County into the Philadelphia metropolitan area. So Tessa, you know that Philpot, Philip, ha, the Philadelphia metropolitan area encompasses not only Pennsylvania, but it also encompasses Jersey, 
and it also encompasses northern Delaware. So I could envision, because uh, right now, Newark has people that come from New Jersey, people that come from Pennsylvania, and people that come from Maryland, as well as Delaware. So I can envision as the Lord leads and as we grow that they, we could have campuses in all of those locations, in all of those states. And that'll be complicated for the United Pentecostal Church because we're all organized by districts. So how does that work? How do you work campuses across? Well, let's see, that'd be one, two, three. Luckily, New Jersey is a part of our district, so it'd only be uh, three districts. Um, but I do envision that. But our real orientation or our, our, our the way that we're directed is toward Philadelphia. The vision that my father felt is that as we would grow strong in the gospel here in Newcastle County, and, and as that would grow, that would provide a safe and strong base to be able to then reach into Philadelphia. And there are churches in Philadelphia, but Philadelphia is huge. And so we all operate, we all know we operate as a part of the Philadelphia metropolitan area. That's, you know, if you're gonna go to a big city, that's the direction you tend to head towards. And so that's kind of the orientation. I think that answers the question. All right. So then a tough one. Who wrote Hebrews? Ah, Sister Lynn. Great question. Actually, this is very easy to answer. We don't know. <laughs> now, I've already told you that, that that authorship is not as big a deal to me. One of the uh, there's all kinds of theories about who would write it. Um, I'm going to deal only with one, which is did Paul write it? So. Paul is very clear about identifying most of his letters that he wrote, all right? There are some more liberal scholars that would argue that some of those letters were not actually Paul, but were people who were, were Pauline, in other words, later generations who, who used his name. And that wasn't unheard of in the ancient world. To It was actually an honorific. In our day and age, we'd call it plagiarism. In their day and age, it was a way of showing honor. Um, to write in the name of someone who perhaps you were a student of or, the, or, or a student of a student of. Um, but when we look at Hebrews, Hebrews could have been written by Paul. This is a, uh, Hebrews whole goal was to explain how the law related to now the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that obviously is something that Paul was very interested in. The second reason that I think it could have been written by Paul is that the way in which things are explained shows an extreme depth of knowledge with regard to the Hebrew law. And Paul would have had that, his ability to broker that. Now, the chief argument against Hebrews being written by Paul is why wouldn't he identify himself as such? Uh, Paul was known to be a man who didn't mind identifying himself. He, he said that he was humble, but well, I think he worked at being humble. Um, Paul and I have a lot in common. I try to be humble, but occasionally I don't come off so humble. I'm not trying to be proud, but I probably am being proud. And so Paul struggled with that. And so I, I kind of don't understand if Paul wrote Hebrews, I haven't yet figured out why he wouldn't claim it, why he wouldn't have identified himself as such. Now, one argument could be that, that he felt because of his work with the Gentiles, he wouldn't be received. Because it is being written to a Hebrew audience to explain how the law is now to be understood in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So maybe Paul felt that his name had tainted it. And so he didn't identify himself there. But ultimately for me, Sister Lynn, when it's not identified within the scripture, hey, even when it is identified within the scripture, um, 
unless it's explicitly within the text, authorship is one that I don't really do can fight about. So, for instance, all the Gospels, we don't know who wrote them. The reason I say we don't know who wrote them is because they're not identified within the actual text itself. Yes, at the beginning of your book from church tradition, you have the Gospel according to Matthew, but that's a later tradition. It is very likely accurate. But again, authorship to me, as I explained earlier, I'm not as worried about authorship. Now, there are fellow scholars that would look at me and say, you're an idiot, and have, as in so many words, said so. And that's okay. They're allowed to have their opinion. All right. So I will toss in one very fast one before we finish out for the night. What's your fa most favorite and least favorite foods? What is my favorite food? Well, <laughs> until recently, as I got older and it started bothering me more for various reasons, my favorite food is ice cream. I love vanilla bean ice cream. Um, but my daughter Candace is really doing a lot of baking and a lot of cooking. So I'm finding all kinds of more foods that I really like. In fact, she and I are on intermittent fasting together along with her mom. And she's doing great losing weight. And I'm not doing so great because every Saturday she makes up food. And then I end up eating it. And I'm not gaining weight, but I'm also not losing. I think she's cheating. But anyway, so my least favorite food, well... I just don't eat it. Liver. Can't stand liver. And there's a whole story back when I was a kid that we had liver. I didn't want to eat it. My dad said, you're going to eat it. Contest of wills. I sat there all night or a long time. Bedtime came. I thought I'd won. I went to bed, got up the next morning and sitting there cold on the plate was the piece of liver. Well, let's just say, folks, I got down to business and ate that liver because I knew that if I didn't eat it for breakfast, I was going to eat it for lunch. So, Liver is probably my least, both because I don't like liver and because my father scarred me horribly by making me eat liver. <laughs> Just a little joke there. He really didn't scar me, but I didn't tussle with him either about it. Yep. Did we All get right. to everything or did we have to skip a bunch? Uh, we have a whole bunch that we didn't even get to. We got probably another one and a half times as many as we did get to. Oh, my goodness. So you mean we got to do this again? It yeah. Sounds, it sounds like we need to do this again at some point since we uh, see. I let the pastoral team monopolize too much. Yeah, I that's the problem. Yeah, because they jabber too much. They 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 jabber too much. Give me one or two more. I'll, I'll go right. a little over tonight. We haven't lost everybody. We're at 49. So let me just run over just five minutes. Give me a couple more, Vincent. All right. Just a moment. Let me. Oh, here's a good one. Sister Sylvia wants to know, if God hadn't called you to be a pastor, what profession would you have followed? Probably a lawyer or a politician, which does yeah. not which does not speak well with regard to how well you can trust me, Sister Sylvia. So you can understand why I am so careful to tell you, judge what I say to you by the word. And if it doesn't match up with the word, don't listen to me because I am well aware that I can be cunning and crafty, that I know how to use words, that I know how to speak. And um, I, I want everyone to be safe. I want everyone to go to heaven. I want everyone to deal with truth. And so I don't even trust myself totally. But I, it would have probably been uh, a lawyer or a politician, some intersection of that. Um, yeah. All righty. Um, here's another one. 
So what's your life verse? And I don't think she means favorite. I do think she means which verse fits your life. Samantha, I don't have a life verse, but I can give you something. I can get, I can get close to answering your question. So I mentioned earlier that I had at 16, I submitted myself to say, God, I will serve you the way that you want me to. And, uh, and how he wanted me to is as a pastor. And I, and I really am. I've, I've done a lot of things. I am a teacher that characterizes me, but I, I am a pastor. I love people. I love serving people. I love the life of the church. Um, I could have shifted into academia and I probably will return to some academia and, and things like that. I love to teach. Um, but I, I don't ever want to leave as long as God will allow me. I don't ever want to leave the context of the local church. And, uh, and so I always, uh, see as my job description, the passage in Peter, where Peter says, he writes, and he says, the elders, which are among you, I exhort who am also an elder, feed the flock of God, which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples or examples to the flock. Um, that passage is my job description. That along with the instruction in Ezekiel to the watchman, that if I give you a word and you speak it um, and judgment comes or they don't listen and judgment comes, then you're free. You're clear. But if I give you a word and uh, and you don't speak it and judgment comes, you will be held accountable. Those two put together are how I understand my role, if you will, my job description as a pastor. That's probably the closest I can come to answering that question. All right. So another one from Brother Keith. Basically, he wants the difference explained between all the various groups in the New Testament. Excellent. Brother Keith, tell you what, you know, Brother Desi, he's got you got his phone number. Give him a call and he will be happy to give you all of these differences. Um, I am not going to take the time on this broadcast to try to go through all of those because that's literally a 30 minute minimum explanation. So since Desi was so helpful earlier in the broadcast, I am sure he'll be helpful again. Give him a call and he will lay it out and actually have fun doing it. So um, bottom line is, is they really in the context of the Gospels were were political groups. But you got to understand the political groups were not separate from religious groups, religion and politics. They were not separate in the ancient world. And so they were different political groups. Some leaned more what we would call secular, like the Herodians, and others leaned more religious, like the Pharisees, and others sat in the middle, like the Sadducees. But really, they were just factions, different political groups within that religious, um, religiously oriented and religiously governed world of Jesus. But Desi can give you a lot more information. Oh, and the Essenes were the were the uh, monastics. They they lived out in the out in the desert and preserved the Dead Sea Scrolls. So there's a thumbnail. All right, Renson, give me a couple more and then we'll we'll call her quits. All right, this one's a bit of a uh, heavy one. So you can see it there. If women are to have long hair, is it scriptural for women prone to knotting on the ends of their hair, which creates breakage slash shortening to trim the ends to have God intended length? Ah, so the short answer on this, and I will give the short answer. If you want a more detail of this, you need to take our discipleship classes. If you've already taken our discipleship classes, then you have probably already heard this. But First of all, God intended length. There's a problem with God intended length because God doesn't have an intended length. 
All you got to do is look across women and all of you, if you leave your hair alone, if you do not cut it, if you don't, you, you don't do anything to it, your hair is not all the same in its length. God likes diversity. Okay. It's as simple as that. So what the scripture actually talks about in, in light of 1 Corinthians 11 with regard to long hair, I believe is actually uncut hair, that you leave the hair alone. In other words, you're intended, men are intended to be reminded of their maleness. One of the distinctives that reminds them that they're male is they have to go and cut their hair. Now, they don't have to cut it as short as me, but they've got to cut their hair. Because if, if you leave your hair go as a man, guess what will happen? It will keep growing. Okay, um, so men are to be reminded of their maleness by cutting their hair. Women are to be reminded of their femaleness by not cutting their hair. And so this this question of, well, if I if I if I cut it or I shorten it by trimming or it'll make it healthier and I won't have split ends, et cetera, et cetera. That's not the point. The point is, is that God wants us being gender identified. He wants us being reminded of it in one of these areas, as First Corinthians 11 puts forward to us is that men, you got to keep cutting your hair and women, you leave your hair alone. All right. And so it's not about a particular length. And this is a problem within the Pentecostal movement because we have we have taken something that is a gender identifier that's about God and we've turned it into a glory identifier about us. And that's a whole nother thing that I could spend a lot of time on. It's not about a glory to us. It's about a glory to him. And the glory to him is, is that we are clearly identified as either male or female. That's what brings him glory. He made us humans, male and female. He created us. We are identified within our bodies as male and female. I've often said when we're naked, I don't care what your body type is, that you're not going to mistake a, a woman for a man or a man for a woman if we were standing there naked. Well, one of the identifiers along with that is our hair. Now it's our clothing also, but it is our hair. And so this is a, this is a thing that brings glory to God. This is about our maker. Um, it's not about... How do I grow my hair longer or how do I? It's not about that. It's not about a particular length. It's about the fact that men are identified by cutting their hair and they're reminded constantly that they have to cut their hair because it grows and you got to cut it. I need one now. The way I wear my hair, I need one now. Women are reminded that they are created in God's image as a woman by the fact that they do not cut their hair. All right, Vincent, one more, and then we'll call the right. One more. This one's a another nice, uh, fun one. If Adam and Eve never sinned, could one of the children have eaten from the tree and God put them out of the garden? <laughs> All right. So, Sister Erica, you have asked a very good question because the chances are is that some human at some point was going to exercise the free will God gave them and sin, and then would it have resulted in the same? And the answer is yes. And Vincent, you're going to have to ask me one more uplifting question because this is a downer. Because what wigs everybody out is the fact that when heaven comes and God restores us back to our original intent, the way we were meant to be, sin is removed, the brokenness of the world, a new world is made, heaven and earth, and it looks like this reconstituted garden. Are we just starting all over again until somebody decides to be disobedient? And that's depressing to folks. And that's why I tell you, number one, trust God. But number two, obedience now is not just getting through by the skin of your teeth until you get to heaven. We've got to practice now because I think we're going to need to still be obedient when we get to heaven. I think we're still going to have free will. We're still going to have choice. And uh, that may wig some of you out because you've got, you know, you're holding on by your 
by your, you know, your fingernails. Um, but I, I think you need to trust God, trust his mercy, trust his grace. But as long as humans have free will, then somebody, yes, Sister Erica, could have chosen to be disobedient. And that disobedience, the scriptures say, produced sin. And sin is what created the separation that God's answer to was for death to come so that life could come after it. All right, Vincent, give me a happy one. Give me something uplifting. I can't leave them on a downer there. Yeah, just a moment. Um, <laughs> hang on. Okay, um, I'll grab one of the Desi stupid ones. Um, oh, no! It should be fairly harmless, and it's funny enough. It should work. Oh, it looks like evidently there's a cap on how many comments there can be. Um, I'll just tell you what the question is. The question is, uh, where are unicorns in the Bible? <laughs> all right. So as I already answered you all, there are, there's awareness on the part of biblical authors of things that are in their larger culture. All right. So we hear of a, of a large sea creature called Leviathan. Well, what was Leviathan? Was it the Loch Ness monster? What, what are we talking about here? We don't know. Okay. We simply don't know. Now, Desi's reference to the idea that there's unicorns in the Bible is actually a translation problem. There are not unicorns in the Bible, but there is a, a passage and it's being mistranslated. And so we think that maybe there are unicorns in the Bible. There's not. But even if there were, even if that reference were, were legit, it was being translated correctly and it, and it referred to a unicorn. Um, the fact that the Bible refers by the authors that they refer to things that are within their culture and we don't know exactly what they were referring to doesn't undermine the truth of the gospel or the truth of the Bible. It means that the Bible is written by humans for humans in a human world. And so they're going to reference things that are not necessarily important within the scriptures. And again, what I tell you to do is when you zero in on something that close and you've got no idea what to do with it, back out a little bit and look at the surrounding context, do a slow read and recognize why is it there? Even if you don't know what specifically it means, why is the author citing it? And that gives you a larger meaning and a larger understanding. All right. This has been fun, folks. We're at 815. I am so happy to have been with you. I'm not going to keep you any longer. It seems like everybody was having a good time. You'll have to give us some feedback. Let us know whether you enjoyed this. If you did, I'm happy to do it. In fact, I have been happy all day long looking forward to this. Uh, so many people have asked me, are you nervous? What if somebody asks you a question you don't know the answer to? This makes me alive, folks. I don't know what you're going to ask me. I don't know what I'm going to answer. I don't know how it's going to happen. And it just makes me alive. It's, it's a lot of fun for me. And so maybe we can do it again. And I uh, appreciate the pastoral team adding a little spice joining. Vincent, thank you for... Uh, hosting with me. I appreciate that and uh, being a part of the, the broadcast tonight. Again, if you don't know about us, you want to learn more about us, go to newarkupc.info and you can find out more about us. Everybody have a great night and God bless.